Before we begin our main event, a brief reminder that Historically Thinking is now on Patreon. When you become a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room on Patreon, you not only support the podcast's weekly operations, from web hosting to scheduling to audio editing, you also enable us to do more in the future. Benefits that you'll receive as a Common Room member include a special weekly podcast, podcasts dropped in advance when possible, special events online and in the future live, input on topics, guests, and questions, competitions and prizes, and more. We will continue to produce our regular podcasts, which will still be available for free on Mondays in all your regular podcast feeds. We hope you'll enjoy being part of the Historically Thinking Common Room at Patreon. Just go to Patreon and search for Historically Thinking. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. When Samuel Townsend died in 1856 near Huntsville, Alabama, he was the era's equivalent of a multimillionaire. He had thousands of acres of cotton land and hundreds of enslaved people who planted, harvested, and processed that cotton to make him so rich. Like many other parents, he left it all to his five sons, four daughters, and two nieces. But in this case, all of them were his slaves. And that crucial event is not even the beginning of the intricate, horrible, thrilling, and ultimately, I think, ennobling story of the Townsend family, which Isabella Morales tells in her new book, Happy Dreams of Liberty, An American Family in Slavery and Freedom. Our Isabella Morales is the editor and project manager of the Princeton and Slavery Project and the digital projects manager at the Stoutsburg Sauerland African American Museum. She received her PhD in history from Princeton University and Happy Dreams of Liberty is published by Oxford University Press. It is her first book. Isabella Morales, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to be able to talk about the book with you today. So, uh, as I was reading about the Townsends, in some ways they are, as listeners have already discovered, they are atypical. They are shockingly atypical. And other ways, they are dead, dead typical. Um, they are exactly the kind of people that you would have found on the road from Virginia to Alabama in the teens, the 18 teens, that is. So let's talk about first their their sort of normalness and then how they be, were become unusual and sort of enter into the court records where you can then ferret out their secrets. Right. Well, you're absolutely right that they are typical uh, in many ways that you might not first think of uh, considering how atypical they get when it comes to leaving their property to enslaved children uh, that they own as property. So in terms of how the Townsend brothers were typical, Samuel and Edmund, who came to Alabama from Virginia in the late 18-teens, along with some other family members, they were following a wave of migrants from the Chesapeake and the Upper South to these new territories that had been opened by the War of 1812 and by land sessions from Native American tribes in the area around that time. So they were part of a, you know, probably one of the biggest land rushes in American history that took place in 1818, 1819 in Alabama and Mississippi territory. They were going with, you know, hundreds, thousands of others to try to make their fortune. This was prime cotton country. And the sense was that 
you could make it rich here. It was the new El Dorado. But of course, to do that, you would also need to bring enslaved people with you to cultivate the land, to do that hard labor of turning the Western frontier into what would become the Cotton Kingdom. And so Samuel and Edmund were typical in that way as well, that they participated in the domestic slave trade in what historians call the Second Middle Passage by forcing enslaved workers that they owned to make that journey from Virginia to Alabama with them. And once they were in Alabama, by continuing to invest very heavily in slavery. So they were perhaps typical in another way in that if you came from a family in Virginia that already had lots of property, there was no particular lure that the Southwest had for you. But the Townsends from Lunenburg County on the south side of Virginia kind of played out tobacco land at that point already. And they don't seem to have been, they, they seem to have been what people before the revolution would have called the middling sort. That's correct. Their family uh, was not impoverished back in Virginia. They were the middling sort, the middle class. It seems that their parents, whose generation is very difficult to track in the historical record, that they may have owned some land and maybe even owned a few enslaved people. And they felt comfortable enough to remain in Virginia in the first you know, waves of migration out of what was no longer the rich tobacco uh, producing land that it had been the generation or two before. But for the Samuel and Edmund's uh, for Samuel and Edmund and his siblings, they weren't going to find social mobility in Virginia. And so they went to Alabama to seek that advancement and opportunity and to kind of move up in the world. So racial hierarchy is obviously a, a key focus of the book. But actually, what's interesting also is how the social mobility and economic mobility is um, is a is a theme already from the very beginning as well. Yes, you're right. The Townsends, their children who were once enslaved would ultimately be freed. They, in their lives after emancipation, would really seek social and economic mobility to create stable lives for themselves in what was often a hostile society. And they were following a pattern that most 19th century Americans aspired to, to pursue upward mobility, to pursue the American dream. And the tragedy is, for Samuel and Edmund, that American dream was built on the labor of enslaved people, like their children's mothers. Another way that Samuel and Edmund were typical was in their treatment of enslaved women who were unfortunately extremely vulnerable to abuse, exploitation, and rape by the men who owned them, like the Townsend brothers. And so the Townsends ended up with a number of enslaved children that they fathered with women they owned as human property. And that unfortunately was not unusual. There were countless antebellum men across the South who fathered children with enslaved people. And because the law of slavery ensured that any child of an enslaved woman was automatically a child um, was automatically born into slavery themselves, that meant that these white men, these slave-owning men, they had no requirement to provide for those children or the women that they abused, that those children, despite their blood relationship, could be sold, could be abused themselves. Uh, and that was 
unfortunately, a fact of life in the antebellum South, what makes Samuel and Edmund atypical is that they didn't follow that model when it came to their children. They saw their children, despite their enslaved status, as somehow superior to other people of African descent, superior to their mothers or to other enslaved people that they owned. And because of that racial prejudice, ironically, Samuel and Edmund attempted to provide for their children after their deaths by leaving them their vast fortunes that they had produced from enslaved labor. So before I get to that, the, the sort of the mate, the first major inflection point, um, one other way in which they seem to be atypical, certainly from the standards of the Virginia culture they had left behind, was their, um, in the Greek sense, they were idiots. They were they isolated themselves from society. That's what an idiot is in, in, in Greek sort of philosophy. And they do not, um, were not part of the political life, which in Virginia that they left would have been a requirement. Uh, they would have had to, well, certainly in colonial Virginia, they would have had to been part of political life at the um, penalty of, of, of massive fine. But things are different in Alabama and things are very different from the Townsend's perspective. Right. So in Alabama and across uh, what would become the Deep South, as in Virginia, slave-owning elites like the Townsends would come to dominate political life at all levels, local, state, and national. The Townsend brothers didn't fall into that category. You're right that they seem to have very little interest in holding political office. They never stood for office. They very rarely held uh, official positions of any importance in their community, but that didn't seem to matter to them because they could exercise as much power as they wanted on their plantations, which were small villages, pretty much self-contained communities in themselves. And so their lack of interest in politics didn't mean they were uninterested in the exercise of power, but it's true that they didn't get involved in um in high society in that way. And to a certain extent, the Townsend brothers were considered somewhat uncouth in Madison County in northern Alabama where they lived. They were the kind of men who could, and on certain occasions did, round up posses um, of white men who worked for them or lived near them as overseers or employees, take them to other local planters' farms and, uh, you know, either attack uh, white neighbors or commit violence against enslaved people on neighbors' farms. So these were men with tempers who you didn't want to mess with, and it didn't matter that they weren't magistrates or sheriffs or congressmen. They had all the power they needed right where they were. So um, nevertheless, then the most atypical thing about them are these two wills. So there's one will, um, it would be Edwin's from 1853? Yes, Edmund Townsend Edmund's, died in 1853. And then mm -hmm. Samuel in 1856. Um, That's right. They die very young. Uh, I guess they've got a lot of operational mileage. Um, they've uh, they've certain, uh, but these the wills are extraordinary. So we should probably start with the first and then talk about how the second then modified or improved upon the, the, the first precedent. 
Sure. So Edmund was the elder brother. He died in 1853, as you mentioned, and he left a will that didn't stand up in court, but it made his motivations very clear. He essentially in the will stated he wanted to leave his fortune, $500,000 in 1853 money. So imagine what that would be today. What, he wanted what to would be it? Leave- Everyone that must ask you that anyway. So what would it be? I mean, it's hard, it's impossible. That's, that's just... It's very hard to convert over, uh, you know, from from eighteen fifty three to twenty twenty two, but it would be over ten million dollars. Yeah, I always uh, tell people like fifteen a, or sixteen. A skilled labor, I think, a blacksmith in like eighteen fifty, eighteen sixty, made like five hundred dollars a year. Uh, right. That, that's a good. That's a good living. That's a, so five hundred thousand is a lot of money. He was a multimillionaire, and he lived a lifestyle. Uh, like you might imagine a multimillionaire would live in 1853. He had a massive plantations, thousands of acres of land. He was served by almost 200 enslaved people. And he wanted to leave all of that to his four enslaved children, two daughters and two sons, which was, as you might imagine, very controversial in the community. And the will was broken in court. But three years later, his younger brother, Samuel, who had nine enslaved children, wrote, a very similar will in which he wanted to leave his $200,000 fortune to those nine children, as well as Edmund's two daughters, his nieces. Now, people were no less shocked when Samuel did this, even though they had the precedent of the previous one. Um, so how does how does Samuel go about uh, writing this will? Um, and I mean, First of all, how does he I'm very curious about how how he conceives of his children and how he provides for them. And then we're going to have to move on to a person who's sort of the, in some ways, the most important white person in the story, who is Septimus, rejoices in the name of Septimus Douglas Cabanus, or you have to pronounce it, but it's the lawyer who's the executor of the will. That's right. So, you know, to start with how Samuel viewed his children, it was very similar to how Edmund viewed his children. They were shaped by an idea that was very common across the South and the United States in the 19th century, which was that mixed race ancestry, a lighter skin color, some sort of European heritage uh, made enslaved people more intelligent, more trustworthy, more worthy of emancipation. So Samuel Townsend fully believes that because he has bequeathed Townsend blood to these people of African descent, they are somehow superior to everyone else that he owns as human property. And he's going to treat them differently because of their mixed race ancestry. Yeah, but but despite that, there are hundreds of thousands of other children like this who remain in slavery. So I'm still, I'm still, the, the mystery of this is how such two men who seem to be the, some of the most unpleasant people I've read about lately, um, they still, there's something that made them do this, which is quite extraordinary, still quite extraordinary to me. There are other people that have the same views of blood. Um, and there, God knows, there were, ten, as I say, there are ten, probably tens of thousands of the children like this who were not freed. So that, that mystery You're for right. me remains. Yeah. And I think part of it goes back to, you know, what I mentioned about their desire for power on their own terms. Samuel and Edmund believed that they could do anything they wanted on their plantations, anything they wanted with their property. And part of that is if you want to leave your fortune to your enslaved children, they're going to do it. And I think the reason they 
feel at liberty to do that is because they were so unconstrained by social conventions. And part of that comes down to the fact that neither of them ever married. Mm -hmm. They had no wives to challenge uh, their public or private behavior, even in a small way. Mm -hmm. They had no legitimate children, no white children to carry on their legacy. And so these enslaved children were their only heirs. Yeah. Okay. So they, so the first will is, is almost weirdly sentimental. Could you, I mean, some of the passages of it just aren't, that won't stand up in court because they're not sort of in good Anglo-Norman legalese. Uh, how, how, does he, right. how does he refer to the, the children? He refers to the... So Samuel, his first will makes it clear that he doesn't know a lot about the law. Yeah. He is, it, you know, it's a document that pretty much just states his desires to leave his fortune to his children. He is asking for things that are just illegal in Alabama at the time, whether by statute or by precedent from former court cases. But you can see what his motivations are. And you're right that he does talk about his children in a way that gives you a sense of how he views them. Other enslaved people on his plantations, he calls slaves. His children, he might call servants. Mm. Sometimes he calls them his favorites, the favorite objects of my bounty. He makes it clear that they are different. And the, you know, that was very similar to the way Edmund wrote his will. And so the smartest thing that Samuel ever did in terms of making sure his last wishes were respected was hiring a lawyer who could come in and say, no, this isn't going to hold up in court. This isn't going to work. This is how you make it airtight and how you make your wishes uh, stand up to the public pressure that they're inevitably going to face. And that man was, as you mentioned, Septimus Cavanus, a Huntsville attorney. Yeah, I don't think we've said this, but they are they're located in northern in the Black Belt of Alabama in near Huntsville. Um, yes, they're in northern Alabama, northern Alabama in Madison County, the nearest major uh Population center is Huntsville, but even that's not, you know, a huge city at the time. Yeah. Um, very, not really into rockets in 1856. So, no, ca- definitely not. Cabinus is uh, a dry stick um, in some ways, but he's also a good lawyer. And he, I would say, is remarkably true to the duty that was set him. Um, he seems to be sort of grimly determined to do it, even if he hates it. Cavanus, I think you're right to call him a dry stick. He was pretty much everything the Townsend brothers were not. If they were uncouth, social climbing migrants, he was the Virginia gentleman. His family was from the same county in Virginia that the Townsends were, and they made the move to Alabama very early, uh, about a decade before the Townsend brothers did. But they had that Virginia connection. That was pretty much the the one similarity they had. Cavanus was very shrewd, very meticulous lawyer. And so when he read uh, Samuel's first will, I can only imagine that he realized he had his work cut out for him. And so we have in the historical record several drafts of Samuel's will, and each draft bears more of Cabanus's stamp. There's no more talk of my favorite servants, the favorite objects of my bounty. There's talk of legatees of the first and second class. There's talk of residuary trust funds. And so, you know, that's semantic, but it is the, 
it is the indication that that Cabinus is making significant changes to the will in order to ensure that the same thing doesn't happen to Samuel that happened to Edmund three years before. So how does he structure this will in order to avoid the the problems of the problematics of Alabama law for the, the, the newly freed? Right. So by mid-19th century, Alabama's uh, legal precedent was very much against the idea of manumitting enslaved people by will or manumitting enslaved people at all. There was a great fear, especially after Nat Turner's rebellion, that if you had a free black population in Alabama, they were going to rise up. They were going to uh, cause other enslaved people to engage in rebellious activities. And so the sense is, we don't want any manumissions. And if somehow there are manumissions, we can't allow those freed uh, former slaves to remain in the state. So Samuel's first will says that he wants his children to remain in Alabama on the land that he owns and to own uh, their extended family members as slaves themselves. Now that is just illegal at the time. And so the next wills are changed to uh, have Samuel's estate sold for money, cash in uh, in in his executor's hands after his death. And then that money will be put into a trust fund for his legatees, for his children and their mothers and some other enslaved people who are freed along with them. And then where they're living, not in Alabama because they can't remain there without risk of being enslaved, but wherever else in the country they are, they'll be able to draw on that trust fund for their education, for land purchases, for home ownership throughout their lives. And that is the form of the will that is is ultimately upheld as valid by the county probate court. Now, and then uh, there, there were, what, four years of litigation to try to break the will? Um, yes. Samuel's white relatives, he had nieces and nephews both in Alabama and back in Virginia. They were incredibly unhappy with uh, Samuel's will. They had succeeded in breaking Edmund's will, but Edmund hadn't hired Cabanus as his attorney. And so there were four years of lawsuits in which Cabanus fought Samuel's white relatives in court. But in 1860, the will was upheld. And that's when Samuel's children were manumitted, sent out of Alabama, and began to draw on their trust fund for the first time. Now, what did the relatives attempt to prove that, um, that, I guess that both of the Huntingtons, uh, maybe they had said this about Edmund, Edmund as well, that Samuel Townsend was mentally ill, uh, that this was the act of an insane man, or did they try to actually look at the points of law, or both? They had a number. They <laughs> had a number of of arguments, definitely claiming that he was not of sound mind, uh, that he had been unduly influenced by the people around him, and so part of the argument was that. These enslaved people surrounding Samuel on his plantation, the women he had abused, uh, the mothers of his children, his children themselves, they had somehow influenced him. And so he, you know, if he's a sick man, if he's not of sound mind, maybe he's weak-willed, uh, you know, they managed to get it into his head that that they should be freed, that they should inherit his wealth. Now, those arguments were 
pretty weak because Cabanus knew the law incredibly well and he had uh, filled in every possible loophole to the point where, yes, it took four years to manumit them, but that was just because they kept bringing uh, further lawsuits. Every time a lawsuit came up, Cabanus uh, was able to uphold the will and it would be declared valid. Then another lawsuit would come. And so finally, uh, in 1860, that process was completely stamped out. Just a sidebar. I guess you must have thought, wondered uh, several times in the course of of researching the book, how idiosyncratic is this? Um, did other people try this? I suppose that at, at the moment, until we can have digital probate records of every 19th century county in the American South, we won't be able to know. It's hard to know exactly how atypical this was. Uh, I can certainly say that it was very far from the norm to <laughs> manumit enslaved children to leave them uh, your your finances, your your land or your property. That Townsend's case was one of the largest uh, sums of money that was ever attempted to be left to enslaved people. Edmund Townsend's bequest of $500,000 to his four children was the largest such bequest in Alabama history. Where Samuel falls, I'm not exactly sure, but definitely up there. This was a rarity for the time. And you know, the court cases that established the legal precedent against emancipating enslaved people and leaving them property were dealing with much smaller amounts. So that is another indication of how unusual the Townsend's case was. Yeah. Um, so let's uh, deal, uh, we'll, we'll have to keep on going back to cabinets as we go on, but I'm, I kind of wanted to divide things into sort of geographical places. So, um, and I wanted to go through Ohio, which might be sound a logical place to uh, for newly manumitted uh, blacks to to go but Ohio Kansas Colorado and then because of what happens immediately after 1860 Alabama again so let's go through the let's go through that list let's start with Ohio which of the the children decided to make new lives for themselves in Ohio well, at that point, the children weren't allowed to decide where they could make new lives for themselves at all. Cabinus, as Samuel Townsend's executor, had virtually unilateral power over where the Townsends would be sent after their emancipation, who would get money from the estate, how much money they would get. So, you know, before the Civil War, uh, the Townsends had very little control over their new lives in freedom. And they were originally sent to Southern Ohio, which was a place uh, of great anti-slavery activism in the antebellum period with the Underground Railroad. But it was also a place that was settled heavily by white Southerners, uh, migrants from from Southern states. And so that made it appealing to Cabinus. He figured, all right, the folks in Southern Ohio, I can trust them because they're people like me. And they were especially sent there because of the presence of Wilberforce University, which was an institution of higher education that accepted African-American students. And by some accounts, the majority of the student body at this period was comprised of 
children like the Townsends, the mixed race sons and daughters of slave owners. And so this was a natural place for some of Samuel's younger children to be sent to receive their education because educating the Townsends had been one of the priorities um, in Samuel Townsend's will. So uh, we should probably go through the list um, uh, of who the of the children. We want just to set that marker. So who are they, and sort of like who's the oldest and who's the youngest? Right. So Samuel's oldest son is Wesley. He has four other sons: Willis, Thomas, Charles Osborne, and Joseph Bradford. And he also has four daughters: Caroline, Milka, Parthenia, and Susanna, the youngest. And they ranged in age from their late twenties to the youngest was seven years old when they were manumitted in 1860. So there was a wide range, and the two older children, Town. Townsend and Caroline, who were both married and had children of their own at that time, they weren't sent to Wilberforce because they had families to take care of, but they did live near each other in Southern Ohio and near the school where their younger siblings were attending. And did they were, were did the estate would buy farms for them and their families? And or how did they, how were they set up in Ohio? Right. So in Ohio, uh, they're renting houses that Cabinus is sending the money for them to rent houses uh, near the university. Money from the estate is being used to pay the younger children's tuition, their room and board. And land purchases have not yet begun at that point. And part of that was uh, because it was a very complicated process for any of the Townsends to receive uh, the money for uh, land purchases for farm purchases, Cabinus controlled it. And so there is a great deal of correspondence back and forth with members of the Townsend family saying, all right, we found this plot. Can we purchase it? Uh, Cabinus sends a white man who he trusts to check out the property because, of course, he doesn't trust uh, these former slaves' opinions. Uh, you know, that agent of Cabinus will write back to Cabinus. They will have uh, back and forth determining the price. And so it's just an incredibly long process. So by the, you know, after a year of emancipation from early 1860 to early 1861, no land purchases had been made at all. And that was incredibly frustrating to some of the older members of the Townsend family who had been promised this inheritance and believed they were going to be able to build lives for themselves as landowners, but weren't given that opportunity. And of course, more trouble ensued when they realized that they wouldn't even own the title to any land that was purchased on their behalf. Cabinus decided he would keep the title in his name because he thought that as formerly enslaved people, the Townsends were too ignorant to manage affairs on their own. So really, the lack of agency the Townsends were able to exercise during this period was frustrating to them. And that comes across in the letters that they write back to Cabinus, um, asking for consideration as free people and making claims to the status and rights of free people and wealthy people as they believe that they ought to be treated. Is the property in Alabama in, by 1860, has it been liquidated or are the are literally um, enslaved people who are related to them, are they still sort of laboring away for the Townsends who are now in Ohio? It's a mixture of both. So Cabinus starts uh, auctioning off the property as soon as the will is finally probated, probated in 1860. But 
it's a lot of land to auction off. Um, and also he is required to sell a large number of enslaved people yeah, that Samuel owns, some of them the relatives mm-hmm. of the emancipated Townsends. And so by 1861, when things start to fall apart with the outbreak of the Civil War, some land and enslaved people have been sold, a lot of them sold on credit, uh, and there is a great deal that is still unsold. And so, you know, we have letters in the archive, Cabinus writing to associates stating that he is uncertain about how to proceed because he sees the way the political situation is moving in the United States with the election of Abraham Lincoln, with the, with the secession of several Southern states. He realizes Alabama is going to be next, and he's not sure what would be proper to do with the estate. And ultimately what happens is when the war breaks out, when the Civil War breaks out, Cabinus in Alabama is a citizen of the rebel Confederate states of America. The Townsends in Ohio and in Kansas, some of them at that point, are citizens of the United States. And the Confederate government says, you can't have any contact and you certainly can't send money to enemies of our new government. And so Cabinus is prevented from having any communication with the Townsends or from sending them any disbursements from their inheritance. So for a period of about five years, the Townsends are really on their own, left to their own resources. And part of that is is because Cabinus hadn't trusted them to give them the means to purchase land and farms for themselves. So they're really in a difficult position during the war because they don't have the money that they had been relying on to start their lives in freedom. So what do they do? They work. Uh, They work as hired labor. They work at all ages. Susanna, the youngest of the Townsend daughters, uh, she is working as a servant for families in Cincinnati. She's living with her elder brother, Wesley, taking care of his wife when she is uh, pregnant uh, during this period, taking care of younger children that Wesley and his wife, Adelaide, have. They are all working as hard as they possibly can. And it's difficult to know exactly what they're doing because during this time, there is no correspondence between them and Cabinets due to the you know moratorium on communication between the Confederate States and the United States. So what we have in the record are uh, letters written after the war when they have communication again stating what they had done during the war. We know that a couple of the Townsend children ended up enlisting in the Union Army. Wesley Townsend, the eldest son, claims that he was drafted into the army against his will. He was someone who shared his father's belief that he was superior to other African Americans. He was very contemptuous of fugitive slaves coming into Ohio, uh, creating labor competition for him. And he did not wish to be involved in the Union Army, but he ended up working as a blacksmith uh, for Union forces in Nashville. Another son, Charles Osborne, volunteered to enlist in the army, and he was stationed in Union-occupied Vicksburg, Virginia, in, er, sorry, (laughs) Vicksburg, Mississippi, in Uh, 1864. And so he, because of the education he had received at Wilberforce University, was promoted very quickly from a a menial to a clerk to ultimately the uh, 
you know, quartermaster of his regiment. And so that was an advantage for him that he had had that opportunity to have an education even just for a couple years before the war. And so that's the kind of activities that members of the Townsend family are engaged in, uh, very similar to other freed people, other free African-Americans of the time in Ohio and in Kansas. So who went to Kansas and what were their experiences there? Because they were in, they were in Leavenworth and they were, which is this in many ways, the center of union, radical union agitation before the war and then during the war. That's right. So I've been talking about the Townsend uh, children, Mm -hmm. Samuel's nine children who were emancipated first in 1860, early in 1860. But there was a second group of uh, enslaved people who were emancipated by Samuel's will. And that's the group that Cabinets called the legatees of the second class, as opposed to the first class, which were Samuel's children. And the legatees of the second class were the mothers of Samuel's children, as well as those women's children by their enslaved partners. And so in total, Samuel's will freed 45 enslaved people, which was another reason it was quite radical, uh, because it was such a large population of enslaved people. Cabanus in his letters called it a colony of uh, free people when he was trying to figure out where to send them in the North. And so the second class ended up being sent to Leavenworth, Kansas, where it was expected that they would be able to purchase farms that didn't happen in time uh, before the Civil War. But they engaged in farming. They married. The women married into local families. And they created a pretty tight-knit family community in Leavenworth. Ultimately, a large number of the Townsends would never leave Leavenworth because they were able to build those strong family and community bonds, with the exception of one of the legatees of the second class, and that was a man named Woodson Townsend. And Woodson was one of Edmund's children. So he was uh, the first cousin to Samuel Townsend's children. And Woodson was often very much on the outs with other members of his family. We know from some later letters he wrote that he felt a great deal of resentment for his cousins because if his father's will had been upheld, he would have inherited $500,000. As it stood, he only inherited a much smaller amount uh, than that because he happened to be married to one of Samuel's daughters at the time that Samuel died. And so he felt that he had been cheated of his rightful inheritance. And so he was kind of at the outs with members of his family. And in Leavenworth, he was also on the outs with members of the local Black community. In 1864, he got in an argument with a white woman um, about the war. She said she was going to find a way to put him in jail. And she falsely accused him of raping her. And so he was imprisoned, he was tried, and ultimately he was not convicted of raping her. There were too many holes in her story and too many witnesses who had very contradicting accounts to hers. But the jury seemed to think, you know, if Woodson didn't do this, he probably did something. So we're going to give him six years hard labor anyway. So he is imprisoned. Uh, His... His links to local elite whites probably saved him from a death sentence because local whites knew of his association with Cabanus. They knew of his association with some of Cabanus's agents in town. And so he was able to preserve his life in that way. But 
the local Black community didn't seem to have any sympathy for Woodson. On the day he was arrested, uh, Black leaders in town held a meeting at the Baptist Church, and they issued a resolution saying, essentially, we repudiate this man, Woodson Townsend. He deserves whatever he gets. He has always considered himself a white man. That's one of the quotes. Um, and so essentially, maybe maybe his white friends will save him. So, you know, Woodson has set himself apart from his local community, while other members of the family have really married into and, and worked with and built lives with the local community in Leavenworth. It sounds like they're, sounds like his father and uncle. He really does. He and Wesley are similar in that way for all the ways that they butted heads. Um, But they did seem to share the prejudices that their fathers shared, that they were superior on account of their mixed race ancestry and their promised inheritance. And that unfortunately led to conflict and uh, disappointments in their lives. And antisocial. Um, or at least a, actually a scornful of society and uh, of, it, of, it, of its demands or whatever those people want. So wh- where does Colorado, who, who in the end um, finds success or finds something in Colorado and, and what do they find? So Charles Osborne Townsend is one of Samuel's sons, and after he mustered out of the Union Army in 1865, he was kind of at a loss for where to go. He could go back to Wilberforce, see if the school would reopen, it had closed during the war, uh, see if he could finish his education, or he could join members of his family in Leavenworth, where there were a large number of Townsends at the time. Uh, But ultimately, he decided to follow his half-brother, William Austin, to the Rocky Mountains, where William Austin was working as a barber. And William promised Osborne that if he came out, he, you know, was doing well enough that he could maybe loan him enough money to go back to school, because that was Charles Osborne's main goal, somehow finish his education. But funds uh, wouldn't allow for that at the time. So he ended up going to Colorado. And in the end, he never left Colorado, because what he found was a a racial regime that was very different from what his family members were experiencing elsewhere in the country. In Colorado, he and William Austin and other family members who ultimately joined them over the following years, they were part of a very tiny percentage of African Americans who lived in the entire territory at the time. I think in the 1860s, when the Townsends went to Colorado Territory, there were fewer than 500 African Americans in the entire region, uh, in the entire Colorado Territory. And so they were considered by white settlers to be very, very little of a threat. They weren't going to be labor competition. They weren't going to be a major voting bloc to upset politics. And they had very similar customs and culture to white miners. Uh, The Townsends were Christians. They were farmers. They were interested in silver mining. It was a big silver mining boom in Colorado at the time. And compared to some other ethnic minorities in the region, the Townsends didn't seem that other. The real outsiders in Colorado at this period were Chinese migrants who were mining or opening small businesses in the area, and Native Americans like the Ute peoples, who were the original indigenous inhabitants of the region. And those were groups and individuals who weren't interested in assimilating into white society, who had different religions and customs and seemed very threatening to uh, white Coloradans. And so that 
unfortunately opened up an opportunity for African Americans like the Townsends who were benefiting from the marginalization of other ethnic groups. And it gave Charles Osborne and his family members an opportunity to be accepted into a community on a remarkable level of equality. Uh, White and black residents of the town where the Townsends ended up, Georgetown, Colorado, they attended each other's weddings. They played on the same baseball team. They engaged in business ventures together. They farmed and mined together. And they were involved in similar political activities in the same political organization. So Charles Osborne goes to Colorado hoping he can get money from his half-brother and then get back to Wilberforce University. But he ends up remaining there for the rest of his life into the early 20th century because as Jim Crow began to you know, rear its ugly head across the rest of the country, Colorado seemed like a place where there was an exceptional level of social and political equality for African Americans. And the Townsends were seeking social and economic mobility as they migrated across the country. And this was a place where Charles Osborne and other family members felt that they had finally achieved it. So what, what does Charles Osborne eventually end up with in Colorado? What sort of, where, where does, where does he, where does he die? Um, what's he doing? Uh, what's he achieved? He first takes up uh, the barbering trade, like his half-brother Classic. William Austin Yes. Uh, You know, black barbers in Denver, in Colorado, you know, dominated the profession. And it was one of the few skilled trades that that was the case. Um, And so he became a barber, a very successful one in Georgetown. He was able to create a joint business partnership with a white lawyer in Colorado. And that gave him kind of some of the seed funding to make his business as successful as it was. And he also used, you know, the profits of that work to engage in silver mining. He, you know, wrote letters back and forth with one of his brothers, Thomas Townsend, who actually returned to Alabama after the Civil War. And he was constantly talking about his expectations that one day he might hit a bonanza, one day he was going to make it big uh, mining silver. And in the end, he he got more money from his inheritance from his father's estate than he ever did mining silver. But he he bought into kind of that that Western boomtown optimism that so many of his neighbors and community members did. And so that's the work he engaged in. He married twice. He had a large family. Unfortunately, only two of his children survived to adulthood. Um, and he, you know, built a new life with his his wife and children, with relatives who over the decades trickled um, across the plains to Colorado. And, you know, some of his letters to his brother, half-brother Thomas are are quite poignant. He writes about sitting on the porch of his house with his half-brother, with his cousins, reminiscing about their lives in Alabama when they were children, when they were enslaved. And those letters I find really fascinating because most of the letters in the archive were written by members of the Townsend family to the lawyer cabinets, and they are written for the lawyer's eyes and, and in a very calculated way because they know how they have to present themselves to this white man who has so much control over their inheritance. Charles Osborne and Thomas's letters are much more open and go into personal details and reminiscence. And so that was a great source for uh, getting a sense of their personalities about their deep inner lives, which of course they had like all people. 
Well, let's finally talk about Thomas and his decision to move back to Alabama, possible only because of certain events between 1861 and 1865. Um, at, at, by late 1865, Septimus Cabinus has been accepted back as a citizen of the United States. Um, he's received the that notification from the Secretary of State, William Seward. Um, and at some point, Thomas makes the it seems maybe to us insane decision to go back to, to go to Huntsville of all places. He'll move back to Alabama. That's right. And at that period, he returns to Alabama around 1868 or 69, I believe. And at that time, the Ku Klux Klan was terrorizing African-Americans in Northern Alabama in Madison County, absolutely wreaking havoc on free black people's lives and communities. You you paint a very vivid portrait of some of the white Townsends out on the sort of a clan, sort of what what they call it, chivalry, uh, that sort sort of, um, sort of on the, on the prod. Um, terrorizing all the local free blacks. I mean, it's quite, it makes any modern clan from even the 1960s look sort of, you know, tame and Boy Scoutish. It was absolutely horrendous, the things that these Klansmen, uh, including members of the White Townsend family who were involved in the Klan at that time, what they were doing in Madison County. And so it really does beg the question, what in the world was Thomas thinking when he decided he was going to go back to Alabama at that point? And I think the answer lies in his relationship with Cabanus. Cabanus often was frustrated with members of the Townsend family who he believed didn't appreciate all the work he was doing or didn't grant him the deference that he thought he deserved as a white man, um, as as a wealthy man, as an elite. As a lawyer. And Thomas, <laughs> as a lawyer. And Thomas was very careful to cultivate that relationship with uh, with Cabanus. And so his letters are are fascinating studies in, you know, very, very calculated uh, writing, very shrewd maneuvers. He writes things after the war like, oh gosh, I am so sorry for all the damage that these carpetbaggers from the North are doing to Southern property holders. You know, it must be so difficult. He's playing on all of Cabanus's prejudices. And because of that, Cabanus trusts Thomas to an extent that he doesn't trust any of the other Townsends. In his letters to Thomas, he gives details about the status of Samuel Townsend's estate that he never gives to anyone else but his white colleagues and associates. And so Thomas is able to be the clearinghouse for information for his family by mediating between Cabinets and other members of the Townsend family whom Cabinets considers distasteful to interact with. And because he's on Cabinets's good side, when he decides to go back to Alabama, he knows that he's probably going to be all right because he has the white elite uh, establishment of Huntsville at his back. Cabinus is writing letters saying, oh, if you come back, I can get you an interview at this position. I bet you could work here. I bet you could do fine teaching school, but there's no reason for you to rush. You have plenty of options. He knows that Cabinus is going to assist him when he returns. And I think that probably worked to mitigate some of the fear that one would naturally feel moving to a place that was so ridden with violence and discrimination. And he doesn't do badly. Um, there's the, No, he doesn't. You, um, you paint a very interesting picture um, of that sort of um, false dawn, um, of that sort of brief moment where it seemed things might work out differently before 
the entire regime of uh, Jim Crow is imposed. Right. Thomas, you know, is the family member who probably rises to the highest heights insofar as, uh, you know, political life or social life. He is elected one of Huntsville, Huntsville's first African-American city aldermen in 1880. And it's interesting because by 1880, Reconstruction in Alabama was essentially over. Six years yeah. before, uh, white Southerners, white Democrats had retaken state and local government. And yet Thomas is able to achieve a level of local political prominence at this time. And that's partly because he applies uh, his skills learned managing cabinets to manage uh, other white elites in the city. He is able to engage in political maneuvering, creating alliances with white elites, because he knows that's the only way that he is going to win any benefits for the black community where he lives, uh, because these white Southerners control the local government again. They control the board of aldermen. They control the mayor's office, the sheriff's office. And so by being willing to wheel and deal and make these alliances, he's able to... uh, achieve a level of political success and win concrete benefits for his community. Um, so does this go on until he dies? When does he, when does he die? He dies in 1916. Okay. Um, and it, he, he has a very interesting obituary actually that calls him quite a few flattering things in the Gilded Age. He is named as a capitalist, as a former legislator, as someone who had retained the respect of both white and black Alabama residents. And that's interesting because 1916, Jim Crow is firmly established in the South and across the country. And for him to have retained the respect of his community is a testament to just how shrewd he was, just how careful he was, and how determined he was um, throughout his life and his career. He is pushed out of office in 1884, at least out of formal political office. Uh, He is a very popular alderman. He beats his rivals by large numbers in the polls and uh, in the votes. And so in 1884, according to some sources, local white elites came up with a plan to redistrict the city. They essentially redistricted gerrymandered Huntsville to ensure that Thomas was separated from his constituents so that he could no longer serve as a city alderman. And that was just to get one black man out of office. Um, And so that's how Thomas's formal political career ends. But he continues throughout his life to be a leader in the local black community. He works to assist black Union Army veterans to get pensions from the government for their service. He serves as kind of an informal banker for African-Americans in his area, uh, you know, buying mortgages and giving better terms than they might get elsewhere. So he retains his leadership position even after he's pushed out of the formal political realm, pretty much to the end of his life. Before we um, wrap it up, I wanted to ask uh, ask you a little bit about how you put this together. And um We've already got some hints. The discerning listener to the historically thinking, 
<laughs> the discerning listener to the Historically Thinking podcast will perhaps have detected that the main source of this is the papers of the lawyer, of, of Septimus Cabinus. Would that be correct? That is correct. So my, you know, the core of my archival research took place at the University of Alabama, where I uh, attended school as an undergraduate. And I actually first encountered the Townsend family and Cabanus's name as an undergraduate in our history department research seminar, where the idea was by the end of the seminar, you will have written a 20 to 30 page research paper using some collection from our archives at the university. And so I came to the uh, Cabanus papers, the Septimus D. Cabanus collection, um, thinking, okay, I bet I can get 20 pages out of this. (laughs) And 10 years later, (laughs) I have a little more than 20 pages. But you're right that Cabanus's papers are a really invaluable resource for telling the story of the Townsends because he was such a meticulous lawyer that he saved absolutely everything. There are nearly 15,000 individual items in that collection, and I looked at most of them. But the most interesting to me are two boxes of letters that were written by members of the Townsend family to Cabanus over the decades between their emancipation um, in 1860 and the turn of the 20th century. And those letters, you know, need to be interpreted carefully for what they reveal as well as what they tell us about the Townsend's lives, just because of the fact that they were writing to a former slave owner, to an elite man who had great control over their inheritance. So they're not going to say everything that they may be thinking. But it is so rare to have such a rich rich cache of first-person narratives written by enslaved people, and especially enslaved people from the same family. So because we have such a, a volume of letters, nearly 200 letters written by members of the Townsend family after their emancipation, we can really see more into the family dynamics um, and fine-grained details of these former enslaved people's lives than might be the case for pretty much any other family um, of enslaved people or freed people in Alabama at that time. Are there any other sources? Did any of them leave, uh, did any they or any subsequent generation leave behind material that you were able to dig up to Wilberforce at Wilberforce, for example? So I was able to find material, you know, elsewhere outside of the University of Alabama's collections. Historical newspapers were very valuable. Wilberforce's early records, as well as information from local historical societies. In the research process, I traveled to Southern Ohio, to Leavenworth, Kansas, and I looked at, you know, small historical societies' collections to see if I could catch any glimpse of the Townsends. And sometimes I got lucky. Um, You know, another source that was interesting to me is about a dozen or so letters written from Charles Osborne in Colorado to his brother Thomas in Huntsville. And those are the only letters in the archive we have uh, written between members of the Townsend family rather than from members of the family to the lawyer cabinet. Now, you referred to those earlier. They somehow ended up in the cabinet's archive? That's right. So the Cabinet's archive was donated to the University of Alabama by his granddaughter, Frances Cabinet Roberts, who wrote a very uh, interesting uh, master's thesis in 1940 that was clearly uh, a product of her time 
and really in, influenced by uh, racial prejudices and justifications for white supremacy in that period of time and that had clearly been a part of her education. But she did a good service for future historians by donating the papers that she used to write that thesis to the university. And part of that collection included some typewritten transcripts. She had interviewed Thomas Townsend's son, who was alive at the time she was writing her thesis in uh, the late 1930s. And it seems that she was able to see some papers that he had preserved, letters to his father. She wrote up transcripts and those typed documents are in the archive now at the University of Alabama. Unfortunately, I don't know where the originals or where any other of Thomas Townsend's papers ended up because Thomas Townsend Jr., the son, uh, died without leaving any children. And so I don't know, you know, whether those papers went to a different family member, whether they ended up um, in some antiquarian's collection or whether they were thrown out. So it's unfortunate that some of that material may have been lost, but we do have these, these transcripts that provide a really interesting window into a different aspect of the Townsend's lives. Before we go, could you talk uh, briefly, could you explain what the uh, projects that you're involved in, both at the, the Princeton and Slavery Project, but also at the Stoutsburg Sauerland African American Museum? Yes. So I have been involved in the Princeton Slavery Project since it started in 2012 and 2013. I was a graduate student at the time, and my dissertation advisor is the founder of the project. And Princeton and Slavery is an investigation into Princeton University's historical links to the institution of slavery. We have published all of our findings and continue to publish new findings online at slavery.princeton.edu. It grew out of a single undergraduate research seminar into a large-scale digital humanities public history initiative. And so, you know, I'm, I'm very proud and honored that I was able to work on it and continue to serve as the editor of the project, reviewing new research and working with contributors to uh, write essays and create digital exhibits for the website. At the Stoutsburg Sauerland African American Museum, which we call SAM, just for ease of saying a long name, at SAM I started about a year ago, and SAM is a, a fairly new museum. It has not yet fully opened to the public on account of the pandemic, as well as two years of historic restoration work. And so we plan on opening at last for Juneteenth weekend this year, and it's going to be really exciting. And for me, you know, I, I worked in museums uh, elsewhere before coming to SAM last year. And so it's really interesting to be involved in a museum at the ground floor. I'm watching a mu museum get built, essentially. And that's been a really rewarding experience, especially because, you know, slavery in New Jersey is not a topic that is very well known, even by residents of New Jersey. That's something I uh, learned working on the Princeton Slavery Project. And so being able to continue that educational work through SAM is, I think, a, a wonderful opportunity. Well, my guest today has been Isabella Morales. She's the author of Happy Dreams of Liberty, an American Slavery Family in Slavery and Freedom. Uh, it's a wonderful book, and I highly recommend it. Isabella Morales, thank you for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you so much. Just a brief reminder, 
If you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook. 